overwhelmed. My mouth and my words are ears and are hearing, so that what is said and what is heard this morning is in accordance to the word of God, within the will of God for the good of God's people and for the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you take your seats this morning, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Our sermon passage for this morning is the passage we heard Nancy read for us, starting at verse 6. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, a, a small city about 100 miles east of Ephesus. We find that in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And as we've seen, uh, the church in Colossae was most likely not begun by Paul, but through Paul's ministry was begun by a man named Epaphras. We see Epaphras mentioned in the letter itself. Uh, apparently, he had come from Colossae to meet Paul in Rome, to sit with Paul while Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and to ask Paul some questions, significant questions about significant issues within the church there in the city. You see, the church in Colossae had been infiltrated by a teaching that was a cornucopia, so to speak, of beliefs and practices from different systems of thought. A pinch of Greek philosophy with a touch of Jewish belief, a, a sprinkle of pagan folk religion with its connection to the stars and planets, all blended together with a strong dose of angel worship and efforts at self-salvation through asceticism, through ritual, through special holidays. That's what Paul had to deal with. Sounds pretty complicated, right? It's like uh, going to the old-time country buffet or Golden Corral, as it used to be. A religious buffet of philosophy and human tradition from which you can pick and choose what you desire, what scratches your itch. But against this buffet of philosophy and human tradition, St. Paul clearly proclaims Jesus as preeminent over all of creation and the church. St. Paul clearly insists that Jesus is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, that Jesus is fully divine and fully human, and that salvation is through the blood of his cross, and life is only in his resurrection. Today, in our passage from Colossians chapter 2, St. Paul continues proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus while exhorting, while commanding the church at Colossae to hold fast to Christ. If you're looking in your notes, in your bulletin, where it has the notes and quotes section, you'll see the big idea for today's sermon is, is, is simply this. Believers in Jesus are to walk in Jesus because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. St. Paul writes in verse 6 of Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul first declares who his audience is, and he offers an exhortation based on that declaration. And so let's look at that declaration. These folks have received Christ Jesus as Lord. In an absolute sense, 
St. Paul is talking about a new identity these believers in Jesus have, that they have received. And prior to this, back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul talked to them, he talked to us about a change in their being and in their status. Once they were alienated from and they were hostile to God, but now in Jesus, St. Paul writes, they've been reconciled. That's their new status. That's their new being. They are reconciled to God, not based on any merit that they had, not based on their work to receive it. Rather, they had purely received it. Unearned, this new status comes in Christ Jesus the Lord. Everywhere in Scripture, it is quite explicitly stated, reconciliation between sinful humanity and holy God is not through sinful humanity being able to pull itself up by its own bootstraps, not able to, not because humanity is able to achieve a level of performance or perfection that somehow puts God in our debt. No, St. Paul is quite clear. Scripture is quite clear. All who were once hostile but are now reconciled with God are so because they have received Jesus. By grace through faith, the positional change of status from hostile to reconciled is in Jesus, the one who is received. You think about that just for a second. Reception, what does that mean to you? Perhaps you've celebrated a birthday recently. Some of us enjoy birthdays more than others simply because of the number we've had. <laughs> but if you have celebrated a birthday recently and you've received a card in the mail, what did you do to receive that card? Nothing. You had no control over your birth, <coughs> did you? You had no control over your conception. You had no control over your birth. And the fact that you're still alive means you received that card. So it is with Jesus' grace. So it is with life in Jesus. You've received it. You haven't earned it. It's not a paycheck. It's a gift. Now notice this, that St. Paul doesn't just list out a bunch of things that these people have received, these believers in Colossae have received. No, they have only received one thing. But that one thing, they have received everything with him because they've received Jesus himself. The risen, the crucified and risen, cosmic Christ, the one who is preeminent over creation, has come to reside within the one and all who receive him, all who believe in him, all who trust him. In John chapter 14, as he prepared his disciples for his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, Jesus said this, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And then within the context of John chapter 14, the extended discussion that Jesus has in John 15 and 16, it becomes quite evident that the way in which Jesus comes to his people is through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is writing this letter to men and women who believe in Jesus, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have been baptized with the Spirit. When Jesus comes upon those who receive him through the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself comes and brings all the benefits of salvation that he procured through his crucifixion and his resurrection. So who are these folks? Fundamentally, they are people who've received Jesus. They have this new status, this new being. And from that, Paul says, walk in him. 
What does this new status or this new being look like? What is it to say that, that the believers who've received Jesus receive the benefits of his work? Now listen to how St. Paul describes Jesus and the one or the work that he brings. In verse 9, for in him, and notice how many times we hear the words in him or with him. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rulers and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rules, rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Talk about an excellent new position because of an excellent Christ. Receiving Jesus means complete salvation as one is brought into union with Christ and receives all of the benefits of Christ. Receiving Jesus by grace through faith means that the believer dies with Jesus and rises to new life with him. Baptism here is a wonderful picture of this reality. Receiving Jesus by grace through faith means life. From being dead to sin, now by grace through faith, those who receive Jesus share in his resurrection life by the powerful working of God. Receiving Jesus means total forgiveness as sins are nailed to the cross. Debts to holy God have been canceled, not because the sinner paid, but because Jesus paid it all. Receiving Jesus means joining with him in the triumphal procession over the forces of sin, death, evil, and Satan himself. Because receiving Jesus means that he shares his victory, his triumph, his authority. St. Paul writes, you have been filled in him, filled with his presence, with his death and his life, filled with his forgiveness and his victory. Receiving Jesus brings us into union with Christ, where all the benefits of his accomplished work are applied and enjoyed. And this is precisely why St. Paul then encourages, he exhorts, he commands his audience to walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pause here and look by way of some extended application this morning what it means to walk in Jesus, the cosmic and preeminent Christ in whom there is full, total, complete salvation. And perhaps this morning we can take the two words rooted and built to help us understand what it means to walk in Christ. Are we all here this morning? We sure? We good? Okay, I'm just, just checking this morning, making sure that the warmth of the sanctuary hasn't lulled us all into a deep and everlasting sleep like Rip Van Winkle, in which we'll write awake in 20 years with huge beards. <laughs> Jesus, uh, you, have you never read, read Rip Van Winkle, Kathleen? 
Oh, yeah, I don't, yeah. <laughs> Let's take these two words, rooted and built, and help us to help us understand what it means to walk in Christ. Any plant that endures must have a deep root system from which it draws life. Anybody in here a gardener, a farmer, try to be a gardener? I see uh, Craig holding up Alice's hand for her. We know this, that for a plant to have life, for a tree to have life and bear fruit, it must what? It must have a good root system. Nutrients and water are drawn into the roots and through the roots, into the stem, the branches, the leaves, the flowers, and ultimately the fruit. Without a good root system, the tree or the plant will wither and die. And so it is with one who receives Jesus Christ the Lord. He is, in the word picture, Jesus is the soil in which the believer is rooted and from which life is drawn. To walk in Jesus needs to mean consistently, constantly connected, buried into, rooted down into Jesus. Think about a building, the other uh, sort of word picture that St. Paul uses here. A magnificent building without a strong foundation simply will not stand. What happens if you build a huge building, a wonderful edifice, a, a monument to your own success, but you neglect a strong foundation? It will only come tumbling down. A building stands and withstands when its foundation is strong, is solid, and is unmoving. So it is with one who receives Christ Jesus the Lord. He is, in the word picture, the foundation upon which the life of faith is built. He is the preeminent one who is received, who gives life, who gives strength. He is foundational. And so what we see in, in trying to understand what it means to walk in Jesus, to walk in him, what we see is we get, he is the soil that we've got to be rooted deep into. We have to have a continuous connection to him. What we see is that he is the foundation upon which we are built. He is the one who gives us strength and keeps us upright, so to speak. And when we, while we perhaps can find the idea of rooted and built to be static and unmoving, when it comes to this idea of walking in Jesus, we really shouldn't carry it that far. What it means to walk in Jesus is necessarily an activity. It's necessarily active pursuit of him, ongoing as Charles Spurgeon would say, walking implies a continuance. Walking in him means constant connection to him. It means constant pursuit of him. It means spiritual disciplines of reading scripture and offering prayers. It absolutely means giving thanks and praise in corporate worship with fellow receivers of Jesus. It means sticking with Jesus, even in the face of turning your back. That's what Paul's big concern is here, right? These, these, these false teachers with this grab bag of, of spiritual stuff have come into the church of, of, of Colossae, and they've, they've said, come over here and do this. This will get you to salvation. And Paul's concern is if they walk away from Jesus, the preeminent one, the excellent one, they will walk away from life itself. So sticking with Jesus, being rooted and built upon Jesus, walking with Jesus means continu continual connection to and it means being aware, in this negative sense, of temptations to drift away. We can't talk about walking in Christ without discussing the warning that is found in this passage. The exhortation of verses 6 and 7, that requires the warning of verse 8. 
So in your Bibles, take a look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. St. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Having received Christ and all the benefits of his excellencies, Paul warns against being taken captive. Taken captive here is a, is a wonderfully descriptive picture, is a wonderfully descriptive word. It's actually in the ancient world, it's a word used to refer to someone who is kidnapped and sold into slavery. These things which have infiltrated and infected the church in Colossae, they're like pirates who have come to pillage and to steal. And Paul says, see to it that no one steals you and sells you into slavery with philosophy. An empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, Paul's most likely not referring to all human philosophy, not referring to all of human tradition. He's probably referring very specifically to the philosophy that was so troublesome in Colossae. He is, however, including all philosophies and human traditions that are regressions away from Christ and are themselves expressions of a human-centered pagan system of belief. These things dishonor Jesus. These things end up in lies and in death. These things dishonor the cosmic Christ as Lord. These things are a return to a human-centered attempt to define reality, to declare good and evil, to be the center of the cosmos. Now, St. Paul is writing to a church. We have to keep this in mind. He's writing to a church, a group of folks who have received Jesus, and he's exhorting them to hold firm to Jesus, to walk in him, rooted and built. He's writing to a church with a problem of a cultural thing infiltrating the church itself. We cannot approach this text and think that we are impervious to such infiltration. We can't think that we don't have the same problem. These things, these human traditions, these philosophies that are empty to seat, these things of elemental spirits of the world that would pull us away from Jesus and have us focus on ourselves or on other things, these things are insidious. They work in clever ways. Like Darth Sidious in the prequel to the original Star Wars 3, and I know it's very difficult to talk about Star Wars because there's like 17 more. You think about how Emperor Palpatine became Emperor Palpatine. It was in a subtle way. He, he manipulated things under, uh, in the background. He, he convinced uh, young Anakin Skywalker that he was working for his good to help him, and it sounded wonderful, but it ended up killing him. And that's the way these human traditions, that's the way these philosophies, these empty deceits, these elemental spirits, that's the way they threaten us. They may sound good to our human ears. They may sound nice. But are they of Christ? Or do they simply seek to replace Christ with the self? It's appropriate for us to ask in this case then, what are the philosophies, the empty deceits, the human traditions? What are those elemental spirits that are threatening us by shifting our eyes away from Jesus? J.I. Packer once said that becoming mature in Christ depends directly on learning to think in terms of biblical truths and values and unlearning all the alternative ways of thought that the world offers. What are those things that we need to unlearn? 
This morning, I want to offer you a list of three ways in which the church and our church are threatened by just such things. These three ways are in no way an exhaustive list. But in each of these three modern examples, we find a philosophy or a human tradition that places man at the center of the cosmos and makes us the definer of reality. And I think St. Paul would say to us, very much like he said to the church in Colossae, hold fast to Jesus. Do not regress. In a variety of means and methods, the cosmic lordship of Christ is undermined, and these actively work to infiltrate the church in order to kidnap those who have received Jesus as Lord. At, these, at the heart is the age-old desire of humans to be like God, to declare that which is good and evil and to define reality. The first thing that the church must be aware of, a human tradition or philosophy that we must be aware of, that we must openly reject, is the so-called secular-sacred divide. Growing out of the Enlightenment and its philosophical underpinnings in which man is the center of all things, the secular-sacred divide is the relegation of faith and religion to the private life kept out of the public. And this divide defines the cultural waters in which we swim. And think about it. How many times do we hear it said or enacted that faith has no place in public discourse? How many times have we encountered faith is about values and not about facts? And so it is. In this world in which we live, Christians entering into the public square, we are encouraged to leave our faith at home or in the church building. We can't let that thinking come into our lives of faith because it's nothing more than a repackaged Roman cultus in which, perfect, which was perfectly happy to allow for all kinds of personal and private devotion to all kinds of deities as long as Caesar was recognized as master of the universe. This so-called divide plays itself out in many different aspects of society, but it's perhaps most easily discovered or discerned in politics. Increasingly, shrill voices in our American culture demand priority to political platforms and ideologies with faith relegated to secondary importance. Even worse, the church has been co-opted by political agendas and politicians to tacitly and explicitly support their paradigms and programs, even when they're not biblical. Lulled into a mentality of us versus them precisely because it is expected that our private faith has no bearing on our public actions, our voting, our economic decisions, or our use of time. As Leslie Newbegin pointed out, this sacred-secular divide is a rejection of the cosmic lordship of Jesus. It's a rejection of his reign over all things, and it results not in the utopian secular society free of all ills, but in paganism. A few centuries ago, the church, quite frankly, accepted this relegation to the private, and we're now bearing the cost of that acceptance. We need to unlearn this divide. We need to refuse to leave our Christian faith at home. We need to be rooted in Christ. The cosmic Christ is he who, in the words of Dutch theologian and one-time prime minister Abraham Kuyper, looks out upon all of the created order and cries, Mine! And so it is, no geographic entity is the kingdom of God. No political party or candidate is to be equated with the Messiah or the kingdom of God. And as our fundamental allegiance and loyalty is to the cosmic Christ, we need to speak truth to power in public and in private. 
as we proclaim that all life is worthy of honor and protection, and that secular borders and secure borders do not mean abusive practices toward human beings is acceptable, and that racism has no place as all are made in the image of God. Jesus is the cosmic Christ, and he knows no secular sacred divide. And those who receive Jesus are called to walk in him, rooted and built, aware of traditions and philosophies that align against it. A second philosophy or human tradition that the church necessarily must reject is found in the thinking of human beings as robots made of meat and rendering physical life as of little value. It is taught that the real me is defined by me and that the I is not bound up in the physical form in which we are presented, but I get to live my own truth, declare for myself what is good and right. It is taught that the real person is found somewhere within, perhaps in the mind, if there is such a thing, and the rest is just a side of beef waiting to be disposed of and with which I can do as I please. Folks, this is just another form of Gnosticism given a new set of clothes, and when it comes into the church, something like the New Thought movement develops. New thought emerged in the American Christianity in the late 1880s. The hallmark was on the focus of mind power. It was developed in the early 20th century uh, by the work of E.W. Kenyon. The system of thinking undergirds the modern word of faith movement and considers the physical world to be nothing more than a shallow reflection of the really real, the spiritual. The center of such faith becomes not the cosmic Christ, the preeminent one, but the self. And such a system with its declaration of the superiority of the spiritual cannot handle the biblical notions of the incarnation nor the reality of a physical new creation. Jesus is preeminent over creation and the church. The eternal Son of God became incarnate by the power of the Holy Spirit within the womb of the Virgin Mary. He pro- this proclaim, proclaims something about the value and worth of our whole beings. The meat matters. We are whole beings, spiritual and physical, and our salvation will be as well. Finally this morning, and I'm sure that some of you are wiping your brow with relief as I come to the word finally. (laughs) Finally this morning, the entertainment culture is a human tradition the church must refuse. Writing in the mid-1990s in a little book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, media critic uh, Neil Postman saw that the advent of widespread television made entertainment the natural format for the representation of all experience with the result that all subject matter is presented as entertaining all subject matter and in his little book he used the the example of the news media we could report on horrific events within the world but it's presented as an entertainment package Postman explains further, it is not merely that on the television screen, entertainment is the metaphor for all discourse. It is that off screen, the same metaphor prevails. Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images. They do not argue with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. Postman wrote this critique of American media culture before the advent of the internet. He wrote this before there was a thing called Facebook, before smartphones, before social media, before Netflix. He wrote this before the twaddle of Twitter. 
The human tradition of entertainment culture has had horrific consequences upon the church. Having bought the lie that all things must entertain us according to our definition of entertainment, we continue to seek the stuff of culture at the expense of deep reflection upon the cosmic Christ. With a largely juvenileized faith, we think we must be entertained, and so we face the temptation. We have to deal or give into the temptation to resort to cheap parlor tricks in our worship. Having lost sight of the glory of the truly spectacular, we resort to human spectacle. We put ourselves at the center of our faith. We are taken captive by the empty deceit of a human tradition. But Christ is the cosmic Christ, and all who receive Jesus are to be rooted in and built upon him, to walk in him. And against our own buffet of philosophies and human traditions, Paul clearly proclaims Jesus as preeminent over all of creation and the church. He insists upon the biblical revelation that Jesus is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, that he is fully divine and fully human, just as he insists that salvation is through the blood of his cross and life is in his resurrection. And so it is today, no different than yesterday, last year, the last millennium, those who receive Jesus are brought into life, his life, where they receive salvation and forgiveness, life and authority, and share in his triumph. Today, no different than the last 2,000 years, those who receive Jesus are called to walk in Jesus, actively pursuing Jesus, finding their root and foundation in the cosmic Christ, aware of the things that would pull us away from him. Jesus alone is preeminent. Jesus alone gives life. And Jesus alone is worthy of faith and trust, of worship and praise. And believers in Jesus are to walk in Jesus because of who he is and what he has done. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious God, we do praise you and give you thanks. Lord, we confess we're a mess. And we confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we come before you, Lord, this morning, and we just say thank you. And we pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, be at work in us, that we would be rooted in Christ, that we would be wary and aware of temptations to fall away, but that we would walk with him who gives us life to his glory and honor and praise. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together and continue.